Welcome to the number one show and the source of truth for all things medtech. Here, we reveal the secrets and stories behind the investments, science, and commercialization of the medtech industry. Every week, we'll take you on a wild ride with the biggest names in the game, from entrepreneurs and investors who are shaking up the market, to healthcare providers who are revolutionizing the way we think and practice medicine. So hold on tight and get ready for a journey like no other. This is the State of MedTech. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Now, this is a new series of episodes that I also want to kick off, which is around strategics and strategic deals. Uh, I have Joe Urban, who's the CEO of Petrero Medical on. Uh, Joe is a CEO that I used to work for many years ago, somebody who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and not just as a CEO, but even more so as a leader. Um, uh, he's somebody that uh, I look to a lot for a lot of mentorship back then, now as well with my business. And if anything, you know, Joe has really exemplified what it means to be a great leader, um, both on the operator side, but also in terms of, you know, leading people. Now, with that being said, before I kind of introduce the topic, why strategic deals? Why this new category? The reason why is that we've entered an interesting time in med tech where you know, we're playing with much bigger stakes. Um, there's more money involved. It's more complicated in the market. Uh, but there, that also lends itself to a lot of opportunity. And I want to introduce um, sort of the wave of technology that we're in. Uh, the third wave, to be exact. Uh, the third wave was something I wrote about many years ago when AOL co-founder Steve Case uh, wrote about the evolution of technology in the internet as three distinct waves, and I think this applies to our industry. You know, the first wave, which lasted from 1985 to 1999, was about building the internet and making it accessible to the masses. Uh, this period was marked by the establishment of internets uh, like foundational infrastructure, like AOL, Cisco, Microsoft. Those are the key players creating a way for people to get online and introduce them to digital technologies. The second wave from 2000, uh, 2000 to 2015 was characterized by the building of apps and services on top of that existing internet infrastructure, right? During this period, you know, you, companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, they all rose to prominence and provided software applications, social media platforms, and mobile technologies that transformed how we interact and conduct business. The third wave, which is what we're in now, is all about integrating the internet seamlessly and ubiquitously uh, into everyday life, right? which enables the transformations across important sectors like health, education, transportation, so on and so forth. And this wave is marked by a more significant interaction between technology and the real world, which often requires partnership and collaboration with incumbent players for the new technology to be accepted and adopted. And it is in this wave that's How does this relate to, uh, you know, med tech? Well, if you look at strategics, strategics are not just throwing money around and acquiring companies. They, they definitely still are, but they play a much more bigger role than that in terms of how they fund companies, accelerate their progress, you know, for adoption, and then essentially acquire them to tuck them into their core business model. Okay, Patrell Medical, 
the company that Joe Urban, our guest, is CEO of, is a pioneering figure in that third wave, in my opinion. Okay, And essentially, the reason why is that they use advanced technology to predict and prevent acute kidney injury. For context, acute kidney injury has about 300,000 deaths a year in the United States alone. That number is bigger than breast cancer, colorectal cancer, diabetes, and heart failure all combined. And I'm quoting that from a publication that I've often, you know, looked at in the past when I worked for them, which is by uh, Andrew Lewington, Jorge uh, Serta, and then Ravindra Mehta, you can look it up, called Raising Awareness of Acute Kidney Injury, A Global Perspective of a Silent Killer. Okay, the reason why we've never heard about that is because nothing really has existed until now, or at least recently with Petrero's product, to solve this, okay? And so through their product, the Acumen Monitoring System, Petrero essentially has digitized the kidney. Okay, think about that. Digitizing the kidney. How? Petro has hardware, okay, that automates an, a vital sign, the capturing of vital sign. In this case, it's urine output. In the past, it was essentially just eyeballed. Uh, they, they pour the urine out into a, into a cup and they measure it and they, they write it down. Okay, this is why so many acute kidney injury uh, uh, patients leave the hospital not knowing that they've had an AKI event and then they die later of some issue. Usually, it's like heart failure or something. Okay, and essentially by automating that uh, that process and capturing that data, Petro was able to translate all that data and hire data scientists to train algorithms and develop their predictive algorithm for acute kidney injury, which they got. So through automation, through the data capture, okay, they were able to transform the way we understand and monitor an organ, in this case, the kidney, and thereby allowing them to technically own. That's why I get excited about companies like Petro. They're going to be the first of many that I bring on and that help, you know, show how you take a hardware, a piece of hardware, automate a process, right, or a vital sign, capture the data, and then translate that data into some kind of predictive algorithm or even a, a data set and digitize an organ. So Petro embodies that third wave med tech company, a technological advancement in healthcare that extends beyond just innovation, that's deep with deep-rooted partnerships and a sharp focus on high-value health conditions. And by digitizing the kidney, Petro has essentially positioned itself at the forefront of this third wave, owning a vital piece uh, of healthcare. Okay, now something I do not talk about on the on the episode because I, you know, Joe's uh, an ex he's an acting CEO of this company, but I'm going to say it here. The way I see this is that when you've digitized an organ the way Petrero does, right? How does that set up partnerships with larger companies and strategics who, let's say, may have, for example. Uh, uh, certain devices that can integrate with this, that help with the delivery, let's say drug delivery, for example, right? Or certain therapies, you know? And so that's the part that I get really excited about in the startup ecosystem is that the idea of companies finding ways to automate processes that have never been automated before. And as a result, capturing data in a continuous manner that's never happened in its history. And thus you digitize an organ. So with that being said, this is our episode with Joe Urban, CEO of Petrero Medical, on Petrero, the digitization of a, you know, organ, and the strategic landscape of how that will play out. Before we get to that episode, I want to remind our listeners, if you are a startup CEO or founder, your early stage company, I know and can appreciate what you're going through. 
the stress of trying to raise money, how do you stay relevant in the market? How do you market yourself as a leader and as a company so that investors take interest and take notice? And at the same time, you can get some commercial traction with early adopters, you know, that physician that you want to adopt your product to really be a KOL for your company. All this can be so difficult, but it doesn't have to be. If you learn how to use social media and put highly engaging content through social at scale, you're able to attract investors. You're able to bring in commercial pipeline early on. And just as importantly, find those early adopters who are going to really champion your product. If this resonates with you, if this is something that you are struggling with, I can help you. One of the great companies that I've helped from the very beginning uh, when they were coming out of stealth mode was Moon Surgical, a great robotics company out of Paris, France with amazing CEO and Ann Ostewit and their chief strategy officer, Jeffrey Alvarez. They came to me in December of 2021 with only 30 days before they headed to JP Morgan Healthcare Conference to raise money. No one knew who they were. They didn't have their message out there. They needed help. Within those 30 days, we're able to develop magnetic messaging, create highly engaging content, do a live stream webinar that generated leads and was a CME uh, based webinar, which attracted physicians. And all of this helped them and put them in a better position in front of investors and prospective customers in those following months. What happened later? That spring, Moon Surgical was able to raise a $31 million Series A. And then since then, they've raised a $55 million Series B with NVIDIA leading the round. Now, is that going to happen for you? Maybe. But most importantly, how do you lay a foundation early on that allows you to leverage and gain that kind of momentum so you can be in the best position to get those kind of results? Here's what uh, Ann Ostwood, the CEO of Moon Surgical, and Jeffrey Alvarez, the chief strategy officer of Moon Surgical, had to say about the live stream event. We had a lot of direct contacts and people just reaching out to us after hearing the event, whether it was live or in replay, and both are actually really important. And surgeons and investors reach out to us for further dialogue or questions that they had following the event. It's incredibly powerful. The MedTech Live event, a great event in that it brought a number of different surgeons as well as industry professionals where we were able to interact with them in real time, answer their questions, and really share our vision for the future and what Moon Surgical is aspiring to do. That's why we reached out to Kativ & Co. to really help raise awareness about who we were, what we were doing, and what our vision for the future was. So if you're a startup CEO or founder and you need this kind of help, you want to be in a better position to get those kind of results, I want to work with you. Shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Send me an email at hello at katibandco.com or very simply, just go to my website, katibandco.com and just scroll down. Click one of the buttons that relates to you in terms of what you're trying to do, whether it's marketing or fundraising or sales, and book time with me, and we'll see how we can help you. Now, with that being said, let's get on to our episode with Joe Urban, CEO of Petrero Medical. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I can't believe it took over 70 episodes, but here with us today, we got the great, the powerful, the infamous CEO of Petrero Medical, my former company, Joe Urban. Joe, welcome on to the show. And are you going to get a better intro than that? I don't think so. Probably not. Well, it took 70 episodes to get that intro, so I appreciate it. You know what it was? It was because I was so nervous to interview you. I literally needed 70 episodes. <laughs> I need to interview like former Medtronic CEO, Bill George, Jim Heath from Stryker, right. all these, you know, Antoine Papernick of Sophie Nova. I, you know, I don't think, I don't think it, I'm, I was ready. I, I should have ready now. I No, not at all. 
should have waited till episode 200. <laughs> it's good self-awareness. I like it. <laughs> well, all, all jokes, all jokes aside, you know, so I think a lot of people who follow, follow me are familiar with you just because, you know, I always speak highly of you in terms of your leadership over Potrero. Um, I really enjoyed my time there. We, we did some great things earlier on, especially when it comes to predictive health. Now, I wanted to have you on the show, Joe, because there's a segment I wanted to start covering, which is I, I've become more interested in technologies that are essentially hardware based that automate some process. And then through that process, you end up with data that you normally would never have seen. And then by doing that, you either own a physiological function, you own an organ, both. And so Petraro is a fantastic example of that. And so maybe you can kind of kick us off uh, on sure. that topic. Here's, here's what's interesting to me. Uh, I, look at, I look at different segments of, of medicine and, and problems that need to be solved. And uh, just looking at uh, some of the huge gaps that we have still in medicine it's um, and the opportunities I think for for us uh, as an industry to improve uh, patient care through technology is uh, through applying sensors that are in the body on the body or in the room uh, whether it's in the house in the ASC the hospital or, or back when they they're recovering at home um, anywhere in that continuum of care I think that's where uh, it's, it's just pretty interesting to me on what type of, um, data that we can provide for the, uh, clinicians. And so, um, I look at what robotics and in the operating room, the miniaturization of tools, uh, over the last 20 years and visualization, what, what that did for, uh, what it did for the operating room. I think the ICU is just about to start, uh, seeing some really fast jumps and leaps uh, in patient prediction and other other aspects where the clinicians will have the data that they need. The, the interesting thing is the data today that is reliant on uh, a person to enter into the EMR is at risk. It's at risk. There's data friction. There's uh, a possibility that uh, it may not be correct. And so anytime you can remove that variability, you help. And so, uh, and if you can do it through automation in a time where there's a, a huge problem with uh, clinicians uh, actually uh, leaving the industry, like we, we are seeing a, a huge, a massive labor shortage right now in the United States. It's no surprise. It's been in the news over the last three years uh, from COVID and other factors. Uh, nurses and doctors alike are leaving the industry. They're just, they're done. And so in those scenarios, how, how do you help the hospital? How do you help the clinician? And most importantly, how do you help the patient that's in the bed? And that is you automate some of the processes that are highly manual, very tedious, and oftentimes inaccurate. Uh, you automate it and take it off of uh, a bedside clinician so they could focus on the, uh, focus on the patient instead of managing through the limitations of their current technology. Yeah. And I think, I think that I'm really happy you kind of framed it that way because, you know, definitely physician burnout is on the rise and it's, uh, you know, physician suicide, we know people don't often talk about this. It's something like 10 or 20 times higher than the, than the average population. And I think part of it is because like, even if you talk to the most burned out physician, I don't think I've ever met a physician who said they don't like the practice, the actual practice of medicine or treating patients. That's the part they all love. What they hate is that 
more and more of the administrative side is taking over. And then part of that, you know, in terms of their clinical duties, as you start getting more exposure and realizing certain physiological processes and how important it is to monitor them, they're, they're put, they're given more tasks to do. And it could be something very simple to do, but when you add five, 10, 15, 20 of these things to constantly do throughout a patient care cycle, like it gets very overwhelming. You end up with inaccurate data, discontinuous data, and then you're making decisions bad, you know, you're making the best decision off of really poor data. So I think the process of automation is really important. Can you kind of like, you know, for the audience who's not aware of it, talk us through like, one is uh, how did Petrero approach this problem? Right. Sure. What, what, and, 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 and we'll kind of lead that into like how, at least in my opinion, because of the fact that Petro has automated a process and receives continuous data that, that you technically own an organ system in my, in my opinion. Yeah, that's good. I like your opinion. So here's, uh, <laughs> I know you would. <laughs> yeah. So here's, uh, here's what we do. We have a Foley catheter, uh, one of the most uh, commonly used medical devices in the world. It's a hundred year old technology. By itself. And so uh, what we've done is we've placed sensors on the Foley catheter and we've connected it to a machine that is able to overcome some of the limitations of the current technology, how to uh, clear the tube, how to do that without compromising the integrity of the bladder. There's a lot of factors that go into getting this vital sign um, online. And, you know, it's not because companies haven't tried in the past. There's every major company that's focused in the space has tried and they've more or less failed in the past because it's, it sounds like it's pretty simple, just clear uh, urine from the, the bladder and get in into a bag. But the, the, uh, the problem is as much of an air management issue as it is a fluid dynamic issue. And so our engineers, who many of you, you know, Omar, uh, have spent the last decade figuring that out. We have uh, now we're nearing 60,000 procedures since uh, we have commercialized. So uh, you do 60,000 of anything and you start to hit a point of expertise. And we feel like we, we have a, a pretty good head start. Now, uh, the interesting part is that once you automate this, something that's never really been truly automated, once you automate it, it opens up a number of signals that have always been there, but it, it just required some, some, uh, some management of the data. And what we've been able to do is we can see uh, simple things like following the Cadego kidney guidelines for acute kidney injury. That seems like it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Uh, for us, uh, automating it, that part of it, the urine output aspect uh, has made it very easy for clinicians to, to see uh, what stage of kidney injury their patients are in. It's enabled earlier interventions at a number of the facilities where they can see it instead of uh, waiting for a lab test to come back that shows that the patient's in uh, acute kidney injury stage two, as an example. We now see it bedside, eye level, and they're able to, to uh, immediately jump in. Now, where I think the, the future, you know, like what we're, we're looking at in the future is not just the kidney, but um, taking this and aggregating it with other sensors that are inside or on the patient and uh, enabling better prediction uh, ultimately to help the, the patient and the clinician uh, and get the patient up and out of the hospital as soon as possible. And you know this, Omar, we, we look at this, every person in the hospital is, could be a family member. And if you, if you look at it that way and you say, I'm not going to wait for it to be a family member for me to care about this, 
it, it changes the sense of urgency you have. And so today, the kidneys, before Acuron, in my opinion, they, they weren't covered, they weren't protected uh, as well as they could be. And uh, we, we provide a, a layer of, and an insulation and a protection, we believe, um, uh, for, the, for the clinicians and the, the patients. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things also that uh, the awareness around it isn't as high. You know, it was even me with a clinical background, I didn't realize like how many people die every year from acute kidney injury just for like context. Like it was like 300,000 people a year in the United States die from that. And I think uh, from breast cancer, I think it's like 60 or 70,000, something like that. Yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a disease that is a silent killer. It kills more people than breast, colon, and prostate and lung cancers combined. Uh, it is the uh, one of the, the most lethal uh, things in the in the hospital, and we believe that we can impact it with our with our technology, at least providing the information to the clinicians so they can uh, they can jump in and, and treat the kidneys and and help the patient get better. Um, it is truly the last vital sign to be offline, and if you can imagine that, it would be equivalent to asking a nurse to go in and check the pulse of the patient. It just, it, it, it's just ridiculous that we're asking mm-hmm. clinicians to do that uh, in this day and age. And so we, with this technology, we're able to give that time back to the clinicians and, and do that. And in doing so, we, we hope that we help, help a lot of patients avoid those catastrophic outcomes. One of the things I, I share with the team a lot is, you know, like imagine um, Thanksgiving, take away one chair. That that's what you're fighting for every single day. Yeah. And you know, I think the other the other side of it that at I, at least from when when you look at the data, I think it's even more is that, you know, uh acute kidney injury can happen like from uh, you know, some procedure in the hospital, right? It's irreversible. And then a lot of patients leave the hospital without realizing, and it's not because of the physician's part, it's just because the technology wasn't there to catch those things. They'll leave and then they end up coming back to the hospital years later with like congestive heart failure or something else. And rea- when in reality, it was more something that was more upstream, which is the acute kidney injury. I think that's the biggest thing about this. And this is why like, I, I, I'm kind of hoping, I know Dan Burnett over at Theranova um, has a variety of portfolio companies that are doing this uh, something similar in terms of like finding a vital sign, finding some physiological function and automating the data capture of it. Because once you, again, own the data, then you digitize an organ, then you own that organ. Has that always been kind of like the goal for Petrero? Well, it wasn't the the, uh, the goal to own, own the kidney. We, we wanted to protect the kidney. And in doing so, uh, we, we believe that we'll have a pretty significant head start over any other, any other company. And so in, in doing so, uh, everything comes down to the clinical utility that you provide the bedside clinician. If you're, if you, uh, if you don't provide that utility to the clinician, uh, you don't have a business. And so we, we feel like we have a very good technology that gives information to the clinicians that they just haven't been able to get, uh, as regularly and, um, as accurately as, as we can provide. And that's the feedback we have from our, our customers in the, in, uh, in the market. And they're very, very happy with it. Um, so what, what's interesting to me, Omar, is that uh, there's still some items that are, are there's still um, organs that are offline and vital signs that are offline that require the manual reading. So exact, like 
exactly what you just said. With, with the kidney as a prime example, uh, it relies today, just to walk you through the way that a nurse would have to do it before Akron, they would, um, an, an ICU nurse has 125 tasks per hour, every single hour. That's what they have to do, 125 tasks. And urine output per room is five minutes of those 125 tasks. So multiply that out, that's two hours per room per day. And in a number of uh, facilities, like some of our largest facilities where we've informally done a time study, we've taken it from two hours a day of manual tedious uh, task to three minutes uh, a day. And it's just literally emptying the bag. Everything else is provided in a digital format to the EMR, to the clinician's bedside uh, eye level so they can see and treat the kidneys. And so that's where the power is. If you can take something that is so incredibly time consuming and manual and automate it, provide data and provide that, that feedback, then uh, that's real world value that, uh, that the hospital and clinicians will realize. Do you think, you know, let me, I don't wanna put, put you on the, on the spot here, but let me, let me just use the concept of like, again, hardware to automate a process and capture data continuously, and then you essentially are able to better protect and own an organ. Um, how do you yeah. see this fitting at the strategic level, right? In terms of a strategic looking at a company like what I just described and how they, that, that strategic can adopt that company as part of their core technology and then provide better care to a patient. Like can you kind of paint a, paint a big picture there for us? Well, sure. Um, it's interesting, Omar. Uh, the, I think with, I can't speak for the strategics. Um, I've worked for a couple, but over the past 25 years, but I, I can't, I can't speak for them, but I look at this and I think the power is in having the sensors and the unique data stream. I think that's the, the future, uh, in the, in the future, here's where I believe we're, we're heading, uh, in five, 10 years from now, I think what we're going to hear from physicians and nurses and hospital administrators will be what does your device tell me that this other device doesn't versus tell me about your your widget versus this widget it's what data can i get from yours and all the dumb devices that are inside patients or on patients right now that provide little to no value i think that's where we're going to see the um a just a quantum leap in in uh utility and so if the clinical utility is there so if the like for us we're providing information on acute kidney injury we're providing information on intra-abdominal hypertension we're providing information on core temperature and we're aggregating all of those uh, and in the future we're working on uh the predictive algorithms that will predict acute kidney injury for uh, a risk profile patient so as uh, a patient is uh, going into cardiac surgery as an example uh, our algorithm will be looking at uh the risk of that patient developing acute kidney injury. To me, I, I look forward and you can push this out incrementally and say, well, okay, well, if that's successful, then what happens in five years? What happens in 10, 15, 20, and so forth? And the way at least I'm envisioning this and seeing it is as you start to move forward, then, uh, then it becomes more and more clear that people are gonna be focused on the data, not the device. And if they're focused on the data, how accurate is your data? How accurate is your uh, your risk index, your scores? How, how robust is your clinical uh, library on your clinical studies on uh, what you're focused on? 
those are the areas where I think we're moving towards. There's just too many dumb devices inside the body that they're, they're sitting there and they, they can be doing so, so much more. And I think the Foley catheter is a great example. It's all over the, the world. It's done every single day and it's offline. That's ridiculous. Like we, we, with our technology alone, we're seeing a tremendous amount. I look at the other tubes and uh, instruments that are in the body for a prolonged amount of time. And I, those that are, are not intelligent, that are not speaking back to a, a machine, uh, it's a wasted opportunity. What are, what, are some of those, where, what are some of those uh, other dumb te technologies? Yeah, uh, central line picks, mm. uh, anything that is sitting and residing in the body for one to two to three to four days or weeks. Um, to me, that is something that you can, you can get. Um, it's, it's valuable real estate where you can get uh, data and, and process it and get it back to the clinicians. <laughs> That, that makes sense too, because like I think, um, you know, I think the other thing is like if you look at like uh, drug and 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 ther like therapies, right, and how you deliver them, I think the importance of like capturing data continuously uh, and, and more precisely is going to help like tailor that those therapies. Because I mean, if you think about even managing a patient post op, right, if you give them a bolus of one thing versus another, right, sometimes it's too much, sometimes it's too little, and then you're, you know, there's there's a cascade of things that happen. I think yeah. like having the continuous data, especially if with things are indwelling. Your thing is like if the, if it's on the patient and it's indwelling for more than a few hours or day, it should be capturing continuous data. Hundred percent. Like, look at a pick. It, look at where it's it's positioned in your body or a central line. You could get so many, so many uh, biometric readings, uh, so many things just from that. And then even putting sensors on the, the devices to where I'll, I'll give one for free here. Okay. So imagine if you had a, like right now, we, we focus on the catheter, the, the, the Foley catheter. And so we're looking at acute kidney injury. We're trying to reduce catheter associated uh, infections. We're looking at intra-abdominal hypertension and trying to prevent that from going to ACS, abdominal compartment syndrome. Um, look at the other tubes on like the, uh, the central lines and the picks. Those are just residing in the body for days, sometimes weeks, and there's tremendous things that they could do. As simply as uh, registering onto the EMR that they're in, indwelling and notifying a clinician that like a central line has been indwelling for two days. You know, have you have you taken this out? There's there is uh, clinical research that has been done that when it's at eye level and uh, notifications on things like a central line, it was specific to central lines. Uh, that when a clinician is notified that the the uh, the central line has been in for two plus days, they're more apt to pay attention to that uh, central line being in and pulling it when it can be pulled. And so not prematurely, but when it can. And so I look at something that simple, like let's, let's automate and start with a crawl, walk, run, uh, the other devices that are, are in and on the body. You look at like just um, some of the things that Dan Burnett's doing at Theranova with uh, Cardiospire as an example. They're looking at waveforms inside from the, uh, the vent tube and they can see the, the waveforms changing uh, in uh, the way people are, are breathing. And so it's, to me, that's pretty interesting. Um, and then just everything in like, think of the OR where they put a, uh, 
like any tube in, in you. I, I, to me, that that is something that we, we should be looking at. Yeah. And again, like, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to hide it that I obviously have a bias with Petrero because I used to work there. But again, I, I really look at Petrero as sort of the model example of a data-driven med tech organization. And if, and if I could just kind of break it down for the audience. So if you look at Petrero with the Akron device, they focused on automating one physiological sign, which is urine output, which is an important sign, right, for physicians to track and use when it comes to diagnosing and prognosing acute kidney injury, right? So hardware automated a process. That automated process led to better data capture, which, which revealed more insights. Because once you have continuous data and more data points, right, you're obviously able to see that, oh, like, this problem pathology happens within this window, right? And that that's what you need to be able to predict things ahead of time. And once you predict things, then you can completely prevent them, right? And so this whole process of digitizing that organ allows you to do that. Plus, more importantly, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of med device companies trying to be med tech companies, which is fine. The problem is that they look at data and they're like, oh, well, if we just capture a bunch of data and go to the hospitals, they'll say, man, this is great. We'll buy it. And physicians and hospitals are overwhelmed with data. And it's not only, well, okay, do you have data? But it's like, well, okay, what am I going to do with this data? Great. I have it. Now what am I going to do with it? And I think yeah. that the, the, the value that uh, Petrero has is that it's focusing on one very specific things and it has a very specific pathway posted. Uh, you know, if you could talk a little bit, cause I, I remember, uh, has it been a year or two years now since, uh, the, the predictive algorithm received FDA breakthrough designation? September of 2022. So uh, about nine months ago, we got a breakthrough designation for our um, acute kidney injury prediction algorithm. So what does that mean? That means that we will do a clinical study, prove that we can predict acute kidney injury in cardiac surgery. And if we do that, um, we will then take it to CMS for a new technology add-on payment uh, reimbursement code. And so uh, to me, that's a pretty exciting pathway because we'll be able to help a lot of patients, uh, hopefully avoid acute kidney injury, um, still to be determined to be studied, but that's, uh, that's where we're driving. I see this as a, you know, the medical device is a nice business. Uh, we make, we make, we have a great business, but the, where it really becomes uh, a fascinating business is when you start to have a digital product catalog and the digital product catalog to me is, uh, very interesting from um, software to algorithms, uh, the capability to improve product in months instead of years, because you're not a, it, it's a different form of medical device. It's not tangible. It's not something you can hold. It's something that is uh, ones and zeros on the, on the, the machine. To me, that, that is really interesting. Like uh, I'll give you an example of a product enhancement um, that we did. Omar, we were watching a, a transplant and there was a very manual process where they were transplanting a kidney into a patient and they record the first urine that comes from the patient and they're watching it like a hawk because as soon as they get to a certain threshold, they are confident that the anastomosis of the kidney is, uh, is correct. We were watching it and we, we noticed how uh, manual this was. And the, the clinician would literally with a piece of paper and pen start recording the time uh, and they would they would wait for the, the kidney to start producing. They would measure a certain amount. Within 90 days, we had a tool to where they push a button on the AccuTab and they automated that full process. So now in the middle of the surgery, the surgeon will say, all right, let's 
uh, do a ferrosamide stress test and check out the uh, check out the uh, anastomosis of the kidney. They push a button uh, and it records it when it hits X mils. Then they're they're confident that this uh, the anastomosis is successful. To me, software is wonderful for uh, for medicine if it's done correctly. And so for us, it's uh, that to me is very exciting. Yeah, and just quick quick sidebar because I, I it's a great story and I want to make sure that like it's captured somewhere. But can you talk a little bit uh, through and this is, I was with Petrero during this time, but um, the conception of like Accutab and and what Petrero did during COVID with it. That I just think it's such yeah. a great story and I don't think it's told often enough. Oh, thanks, man. Well, we uh, when COVID just to bring everyone back to the COVID days. It, so thankful we're out of them, but. Um, when it first started happening, we noticed uh, a couple of tweets, and everybody was uh, everyone was trying to figure out how to treat these patients. Uh, no one really knew. It was the first and, real pandemic. And so you noticed that, some tweets. So you, like, so we were actively checking Twitter, Twitter back then. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Again, yeah. I just so want to point we, that out because it's too many too, too many med tech uh, execs are like, oh man, like, well, we think social media is important. We don't, but like, literally, this is, these are insights from from uh, from Neth Twitter. So I just wanted to point that out. Sorry, continue, Joe. Yeah. Well, we, we, they were putting pictures on and, um, I think you sent it to me. You said, check this out. And they were pushing all the equipment into the hall. So the nurses wouldn't have to don and doff, uh, their equipment, their PPE equipment that was like gold. Right. So they, we, we got caught, uh, with not enough PPEs in the country. And so they're trying to minimize the amount of time that they would have to times that they would have to enter the room and exit the room and, uh, remove their equipment and their uh, their gowns and gloves and all everything. And so they they moved everything they could outside. So all the infusion pumps, anything that could go outside of the room, they did that. Now, what was crazy is to to set infusion, uh, they would have to go into the room to check urine output because they would need to know what would uh, what needed to go back into the patient based on what came out. And so what we did is. Uh, we, we had a project where we were taking the screen and we were pulling it up off of the floor onto uh, the infusion pumps so the clinicians could see at eye level. They didn't have to get down and, and look bedside what was happening. And we looked at a remote monitor that had all of the parameters of Acurin and it was, it was in our product roadmap. And I sent Sahil our, at the time, uh, our chief technology officer, he's now the CEO of Gravitas. And I, I sent him a text and I said, all right, how fast can we get this out? And he said, I don't know, like a year. And I said, you have 90 days. Do you remember that Omar? And he was like, what? And so we, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun because what we did, um, we stripped it down, totally stripped it down. And the way we were looking at it is we have 90 days to get this done for documentation getting the, the technology up and running, but then just documenting everything required for a, a medical device and all the record of file, all that stuff. And so Dimitri and uh, Sahil got the R&D team together remotely because no one was really using Zoom at the time. And uh, they were using Zoom and they said, okay, uh, we have 90 days to get this product across the line. And they just, they work morning, night, weekends, everything for six weeks and they got it out. And so it was, it wasn't 90 days. It was six weeks. So it was pretty, but still, pretty amazing. 
Yeah, and I remember, I think the part that I'm most proud of is that I remember that we we essentially sent out and loaned out our Akron units and those Accutabs to hospitals who were not customers just to help during COVID, which I thought was was fantastic, you know? I think yep, we were, very- I, I think we were the, to be honest, I think, I don't, maybe with the exception of like massive companies like Abbott, but even then, I think we were the first med tech company to do that actually during COVID. Well, I think, here, here's the thing, um, LinkedIn, as far as LinkedIn goes, I, I, can't remember seeing anybody doing remote training of our technology or any technology. No. And we, yeah, were, yeah. we were, we were doing it. Rich Keenan did it within um, a couple of days of the national lockdown. We had a hospital in Arkansas yeah, yeah. that went live. I remember. And he came into the office and did a Zoom and he trained them uh, in a, and everybody was very serious because they didn't know what they were going into. And within 90 minutes, we had their entire clinical staff up and running on Zoom. And we, we believe that was one of the first. Back to the AccuTap story, just one more thing. Barbara McLean at Grady Hospital was the very first to do it. And so uh, just to close that out, Omar, what would happen is it would plug into the Akron and we'd have a 15-foot cord that would go out outside of the room or in the window to where they could see what the kidney was producing. So it, it saved the clinician from having to enter the room and blowing through a PPE. And so it was a success. It was a lot of fun. Alice, um, it, it wasn't fun. It was it was a very uh, proud moment, at least for me, to see our team do something so quickly uh, and in response for a national emergency. I felt like that was pretty pretty cool. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It it really was. And I think you know um, I'm hoping to see more. More method companies kind of take the same approach, which is like if they're going to have some kind of a data play, which I think to raise money these days, like you have to have something that's digital and has some kind of data play within it. But to kind of take it in terms of a lot more of a discipline and focused approach of like thinking about a physiological sign or a vital sign or, or something in the body and really focus on owning it and tracking that back to an organ system versus again, like yeah. I think I think in the early 2000s, maybe even somewhat late 2000s, you can do this thing where it's like, hey, we're just going to capture a bunch of data and then, you know, our company valuation will go up. I think we're way past that point and now there needs to be like a lot more of a focus and discipline approach to it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Here's how I see it, man. Um, If you look at Intuitive uh, 23 years ago when they were just getting their FDA approval, they're trying to sell the the technology and um, it took them years to get up and running. Try unseating Intuitive now. It's going to be very difficult for anybody to come in and take robotic share like that's that's why their market cap is where it is it's i don't know if you saw it, omar but their market cap they're worth more than medtronic is uh on on the market and they're worth more than striker this is a company where you could buy their shares for a buck 20 years ago right and they've created such great clinical value for the surgeons and for the hospitals and for the patients it's indisputable and they've They've, uh, they've had a, a pretty good head start. Those that are trying to do it now, it's going to be very difficult for them to unseat intuitive. Uh, and, I, and I see this as the same way. Uh, I, I see this as those that own uh, data and data streams and have access to uh, data that has clinical meaning to the clinicians, that helps the patients, they will have a very good business. But as long as they're focused on helping the patients. And so the helping the patients, just like intuitive helped uh, reduce variability 
and increased the amount of uh, capabilities the surgeons had. If you can do the same thing with data and you can provide that to the clinicians, and my personal take, and I know I'm biased, so I'm going to sound like a homer here, but I, I believe it's the sensors that are, like I've said in this interview, like the sensors in and on the patient uh, are the most accurate as long as the, the, uh, the, the data has been validated. So like the sensors have been validated and we're on 60,000 procedures. So I feel pretty confident saying like I, we're doing pretty well. Uh, when I look at this, Omar, I look at it and say there's value in that data. And if you provide uh, algorithms and data to a clinician that help them in that moment and give them capabilities that they didn't have yesterday, then that's what, what changes the game. And uh, that's what Intuitive did 20 years ago. They, Because I, I remember when I was at Boston Scientific and doing endourology and we saw this room and there was like five doctors outside looking in and there was brand new urologist. This was in Dallas, Texas. And they were looking in and shaking their heads. And I remember them saying, this thing's never going to fly. You know, like this is taking them forever. And it was, uh, and obviously in urology, intuitive owns uh, the prostate. You know, they, they own uh, that procedure, but they, it was what got them their head start. And so you look at that and you say, okay, you're going to, is if you can cross that chasm and you can get across the first chasm and rev the engine for the second one, because there is a second one, uh, and you make that second one, then then you're set. And I, I feel like we're right before our first chasm. And so we're about to take the jump. Uh, and as soon as we clear that chasm, it, then it's time to rev the engine for that second one. And then we should have a very good business uh, beyond that. Owning uh, an organ like Intuitive owned the procedure, the prostatectomy. Now I think 90% of all prostates are done with the robot. That's incredible. That was not the case 20, 20 years ago. All right. That took a lot of, uh, a lot of dedication. So. Absolutely. And, you know, just, just like, um, it's funny, like it, one of the heuristics I always love is just like follow the money, you know, the money, like it's always a source through, even, even when it doesn't, when that, when that shouldn't apply, like in random, random scenarios, like forget business, like just in random, yeah. it's always the money. And if you look at open payments and go, if you look at like Medtronic and J&J, a big majority of what they're payments go to are like royalties and licenses consulting right but if you look at intuitive something like 30 no not 30 i'm sorry like 50 or 60 percent of intuitive's um budget for, that's on reported and open payments went towards education so like all the top nine of the 10 payees of, from intuitive last year it's like a total of 30 32 uh, 32 million dollars it's all academic centers. So they're just focusing on the education, the training of like, this is how you do it. This is how you do this procedure. And yeah. then of course the robot serves as a vehicle for that. But Joe, just, you know, I know you're busy. And so just as we kind of wrap up, just out of curiosity, aside from a Petro, what are some other companies that kind of come to mind where you feel like based on their, based on their data, based on their digitization of a pathology or an organ system, what other companies yeah. do you kind of put in the same category as Petro? Well, uh, there's there's a lot of great technologies right now, and you know I think what um, I look at like uh, Cerebell and what they've done with uh, brainwaves, it's pretty incredible, and they've built an amazing business uh, and something that is to be admired. Uh, I think that they have helped a lot of patients, and they're definitely helping the the hospitals and and the um, clinicians. 
And so I, I look at Sarah Bell and I, I, I just, they, they're just doing a great job. Um, super, super uh, impressed with everything that they've been able to achieve in the last three to four years. Like it's, it's pretty amazing. And then um, I look at uh, a number of companies like uh, that are, are tackling some pretty big problems. Um, like uh, some of the, the predictive analytics companies that are looking at um, how to reduce uh, clinical errors in the hospital, how to see earlier what's happening. Uh, some of the wearables, um, they're starting in pediatrics, but then they're moving over to uh, adults, but they're, they're picking a very specific uh, call point on the, the mm -hmm. front, front end. And to me, that, that's a pretty good strategy. I, I think the it's always fun to watch the robotics and like, I love watching moon surgical with, uh, yeah. Our old friend Jeff Alvarez, just they, they, and Noonan they, and all the guys that used to be at Oris, they're doing some really cool things and I think they're going to just crush it. I just, I'm I know excited. I'm excited for them. Yeah. And, and since Anne has done a great job as CEO in terms of like telling the story of the technology and the vision of the company. And again, I don't, they're not, they're doing something different and it doesn't, you know, feel like they're trying to complete directly with intuitive. Obviously they, they are in some ways, but you know, there are, I don't want to mention any other company names, but there's some companies where it's just like blatant, like Da Vinci knockoff. And I'm just like, that's not how you win. Um, but yeah, the moon has had some really exciting news with, uh, so like Fred, Fred mall joined their board Nvidia last read led their last round. So it's like really interesting what they're doing. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's uh, they've they've done a fantastic job. You know, yeah, it's really good. There are two two companies. So on the on it's a little bit different, but like on the topic of like hardware and automation, two companies. The, the other side of this is like companies that use hardware or software to put the skills of a specialist in the hands of like a generalist it is really exciting. So the two companies come to mind. One is uh, my buddy Cody Simmons, who's CEO over at Dermasensor. Essentially, it's a hardware that detects um, uh, different types of carcinomas on the skin, right? And so yeah. they're putting that in the hands of like primary care doctors, right? So that the skills of a dermatologist in the hands Great. of primary care. The other side, which is really interesting because I've seen their devices. I know a lot of cardiologists uses Echo. So Echo, a lot of people think it's a cardiology company. I think it's a primary care company because they're essentially taking their yeah. digitized stethoscope, putting it in the hands of primary care doctors to capture and catch you know, heart murmurs, pathologies of heart that increases a referral pattern for, for cardiologists. So there's two that kind of come to mind that are pretty exciting. That was a great company. Eric Davidson's a stud. Eric, he, Eric's over there. Yeah. He's, he's supposed to be coming on the show sometime soon. So, but they have him. <laughs> um, he's very, yeah. And then uh, Joseph Othman, he's the VP of sales over there. Another guy's been on the show a couple of times. They have a really solid team. Uh, Joe, just, you know, thanks for coming on the show, but just kind of want to uh, wrap up. Um, what are your kind of thoughts just kind of rounding out the year for MedTech? It's kind of been an interesting year in terms of like, you know, the venture yeah. capital side of things. I mean, the beginning of the year was just like absolute chaos with the Silicon Valley bank collapse, the FTX, like there's just all kinds of nonsense. And now Crazy. it feels like we're yeah. in really like quiet times. Like it's, it's, it's a little bit more quiet than usual. So just kind of your, your take on the market right now. So, uh, I'm, you know, this Omar, uh, positive thinking optimist, even when the bank collapsed, it was just kind of like. I, I didn't have that one. Uh, this is why we get out. along both. We get along so yeah. well. Yeah. And, but it was, it was really interesting to see, you know, the, the psychology of a bank collapse and the, the fact that, uh, uh, you know, like we, we were at spring break and down at Disney and Disney world 
with the kids and I walked out of one ride and I had a text from the CFO saying, our bank just collapsed. And I was like, what? Like, how does it even happen in this day and age? But with Twitter, it happened. Like everybody just knowing the mindset of Silicon Valley, it was the, the, uh, the, the same people that were saying support Silicon Valley are the same people that drained the bank like that. And so uh, to me, that was, that was, it was, it was terrible to watch. And it was, uh, it was just, and what's crazy, Omar, is we were, uh, we were supposed to close on our funding that day. <laughs> so it actually happened the week after. And so, and it was originally the week before we we're like, all right, we'll close on this Friday. And then there was something that happened and they said, we're going to close the next week. And so I, at the time I was like, all right, you know, that's only a week. And that next Friday, everything closed or shut down. Like it's a bank collapse. And I was like, was this even me? And so, you know, it just, it, it shows you that you have to have a resilient mindset to do anything like this. And you have to have a mindset that, uh, you, uh, it, and I don't want to say no fear. It's just that you have to mitigate the fear and you just have to keep driving forward. And even if you can't see the top of the hill, you just have to keep chugging along. But what I would tell you is my personal take is I think what we're going to see is we're going to probably see more collaborations. You're going to see uh, venture and uh, other companies that are looking at partnerships and how do they how do they force multiply themselves in the field and as a company how do they stretch dollars further uh, because the, the the growth dollars that came in 17, 18, 19, 20 till COVID uh, those days are gone and so it's how do you how do you create a great business how do you drive forward how do you make sure that uh, the technology hits mass uh, mass market and how do you how do you keep driving forward and so uh, hospitals feel like they're kind of getting their feet under them they, they've had a couple of one two punches first with covid and then uh, with omicron which was covid part 2 and then you had the nurse crunch and shortage and and it's just one thing after another for a hospital and it's like that their their technical folks are leaving um, the industry because they're burned out. And so I think there's going to be, I think, uh, I think there's going to be a, a regrouping. There's definitely going to be a greater requirement for healthcare economic outcome uh, research. So your outcomes, like uh, how do you, how do you really help the hospital uh, either make money or save money? That's going to be a requirement. And I do believe that we're moving into an era uh, over the next 20 years, where data is going to be the most important thing in the hospital. How do I make better decisions? How do I help the clinicians? And you're seeing it, dude, in every aspect of our life uh, with ChatGPT and other uh, tools that are coming on board. You're, you're only going to see more of it. And ours, our, our industry will be a little slower because we're regulated. But just watch, man, the next 20 years, I think that's going to be the, the, uh, the golden ticket for anybody that figures it out. Absolutely. No, I, I hold it again. Again, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, actually, you know, I, I, I knew I understood it, but I never, I never really embraced it as much until I like worked for you, which is this concept of like, I don't know, your perceptions really do paint your reality. And so when you decide to be, uh, you know, to have a perception of like abundance and opportunity and positivity, it doesn't mean to have like blind positivity, but like, you know, you, you know, like, for example, when COVID happened, because again, I was I was working, working for you. I, I remember I told my wife at the time, I was like, hey, 
this is going to be our greatest year. I was like, and it was in the, right when the when COVID happened. I was like, this is we're going to make a lot of great things happen. We got in much better shape that year. We had a lot of opportunities created for ourselves, you know, personal and professional life. And so I think that like no matter what, life is going to happen. And so I think this concept that like I think a lot of CEOs and people can benefit from, which is how do you how do you focus on the things that you want to happen and take action towards that? Because that's a much better way to live life than to constantly allow like the negative to weigh you down and for you to use that sort of in the back of your mind as an excuse as to, oh, this is not going to happen because of this. I mean, look, COVID should have been uh, like a death sentence for Petro because at the time, you know, we disbanded from a partnership. We only had like two or three salespeople and we were in the middle of raising money. But, you know, we packed pipeline. We raised money that year. Like all these great things happened, should not have happened. And I think part of it was because, you know, things things flow top down. And Joe Urban was leading the chart saying, we're going to we're going to make it through this. And I remember I remember those I remember those team calls. You know? Yeah. Well, here's the thing, man. And this is what I've reminded myself of recently, like choice. You have a choice. Like you can choose to, to let drama enter your life or you could choose not to. And it sounds silly. And but like when I've gotten upset over the last couple of weeks or months, say, wait, why, why am I choosing that? I don't choose to have that drama in my life. I don't care. And so I, I choose to, to move on. And so uh, when you give yourself a choice and when you're upset or you're looking at something saying, why am I upset? Am I choosing to be upset? Am I choosing to, to let this person bother me or this situation get on my nerves? Why am I choosing that? Because it's you're choosing it when you show that emotion. Mm-hmm. So anytime that you um, put yourself back into to control and say, I choose not to. And I, I, Omar, uh, you saw Rebecca a little back, bit ago. She was saying something to me and it was about somebody. And I just said, I choose not to think about that. And it's like, just you have to do that. Like you have to focus on uh, what you choose to do. It's just it's what you can control, man, every day. Like you can control. Are you going to have a good day or a bad day? Like are you going to think of negative thoughts or are you going to reinforce your positive ones? How are you going to uh, how are you going to push through and push forward? So. Absolutely. Well, and I hope uh, someday you either do a course or write a book on on this like leadership style, because I'll tell you, like, it was very inspiring. And uh, I learned a lot just watching you lead the organization through really tough times, times when, you know, we had some layoffs, people had to leave. And just, yeah, no, no, I really mean it. And the way the way you chose to treat people on the way on the way on their way out, the way you're supportive, you acknowledge people, even the most junior people on their way out, whether they change jobs or is due to a layoff at the time. Um, acknowledging their contributions to the organization and everything. And so, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about that. And so um, I'm really happy that you're a young, you're a young CEO because like you got a lot in you. And so I'm excited to see like all the things you do, but you got to write that book. Definitely. All right. Post Petrero, when you're on your sabbatical, you got to, you got to, I'll, I'll help you write that book. There you go, Omar. Well, awesome. and I'm, I'm excited to see all your success, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm definitely going to have to have you back. We'll have to have you back because you do more like of a like casual leadership one because there's all all kinds of topics that like you and I can just riff about. I think the audience would really like a lot. But for the time be being, th- yeah, man, thanks for coming on. I'll plug your LinkedIn for those who are listening. Go check out what Petrero's doing. Go to PetroMed.com or also follow their their Instagram. Instagram handle. You have an Instagram handle, but follow them on LinkedIn and definitely follow Joe on LinkedIn. He's got a fantastic LinkedIn presence and really does a great job storytelling what Petro's up to. So with that being said, I'm Omar Khatib, your host for the State of MedTech, and we'll see you all next time. 
Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of the State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, do us a favor, hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has a executive that you'd like to be on the show or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at Take care and we'll see you next time.